Welcome to the preaching podcast of Life Point Church. We're so glad you've joined us here. If you're ever in the Baton Rouge area, please stop by. We'd love to meet you. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, please visit our website at golifepoint.com. All right, well, we are in Revelation Revealed tonight. This is part 17. We're looking at chapter 12 tonight. Hopefully we'll finish. It's a very short chapter, but it's a pivotal chapter and a lot packed in. And so we'll do a little review and introduction, and then we'll jump into 12. So let me say a prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word, for your faithfulness and your goodness. I pray, God, that you would just continue to move. Speak to us through this so amazing book of Revelation. Speak to our hearts tonight. We give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. God bless you. The last time we looked at John measuring the temple, the third temple that's yet to be built in Jerusalem, we saw how that's the temple that's referred to here. The angel told him not to bother measuring the outer court because it was given to the Gentiles. And we looked at the implications of that. The angel also told John the holy city would be trodden underfoot by the Gentiles for 42 months or three and a half years. 1260 days. That's the last half of Daniel's 70th week, which is the Great Tribulation. Incidentally, this is the most talked about period of time in all the Bible. Do you know that? The 70th week of Daniel, this three and a half years or seven year period of time, which is comprised of two three and a half year periods of time, this 1260 days plus 1260 days. It is the most talked about period of time, well documented throughout the Bible. So it's obviously very important and significant. In the middle of Daniel's 70th week, we saw how the Antichrist will commit the abomination of desolation or the abomination that makes desolate, and all hell will break loose, ending with the battle of Armageddon. We'll get to that in chapter 16. Also in Genesis 11, we saw two witnesses. Remember, remember the two witnesses? They are in sackcloth and they're preaching a message of repentance and judgment to come. They did so for 1260 days. This is very likely in the first half of Daniel's 70th week before the abomination that makes desolate. These two witnesses will be, we looked at, uh, supernaturally empowered and protected. You know, fire comes out of their mouth, and uh, they call down plagues. They make it rain. They make it stop raining. Uh, very, very powerful uh, witnesses uh, for the Lord. If anybody tries to kill them, the person that tries to kill them is killed in the way that they were trying to kill the two witnesses. It's just amazing. So everybody's terrified of them and hates them. And uh, we saw that they they fulfill their mission. They they, they do everything they were called to do uh, until their mission is accomplished. In other words, they're supernaturally protected, but then when their mission is fulfilled, they're killed. They are martyred. They, they lay their lives down. Uh, and we saw that, that God was in control. God had this plan, and they fulfilled that plan. We talked about who these two witnesses are. The leading candidates are Moses and Elijah, maybe Enoch. And they could be, for all we know, totally new people uh, that, you know, are unknown to us. But I lean more towards Moses and Elijah because of the nature of the signs and wonders that 
follow them. Uh, you know, with the fire uh, flying and falling and, and with the, uh, the plagues, they have the ability to bring plagues. And we saw plagues with Moses, you know. And so we also know that Moses and Elijah were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus back in the Gospels, discussing with Jesus the plan of redemption, things to come. Now, incidentally, as an aside, but an interesting one, um, some commentators have speculated as to whether these witnesses were also perhaps at the empty tomb and at the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 1. And uh, I thought it was worth mentioning. Based on Matthew, Mark, and John's account of the empty tomb, we see where there were at least three angels involved. One sitting outside the tomb and two inside the tomb. But Luke 24, 4 says, as the women were perplexed at the tomb, that two men, two men suddenly appeared in dazzling clothes. And some commentators have speculated, have questioned, could these men have been Moses and Elijah? I mean, they appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. Why couldn't they appear at the empty tomb at the resurrection? It's food for thought, but especially in light of Acts 1.10, where 500 people had gathered together to watch Jesus ascend. He's going to fly away. And again, it says two men in white. It doesn't say angels. It says two men. Interesting. Two men appeared and said, Why stand ye here gazing? So were they angels? Or could it have been Moses and Elijah again? I don't know. It's food for thought. You can chew on it, dust it off later, go study it out yourself. It's just a thought. I thought I'd bring it to you. Now, back in Revelation 11, once the two witnesses finished their mission, they were martyred. They lay in the street for three and a half days. Cameras rolling, social media, uh, CNN, Fox News, uh, MSNBC, everybody's watching, ABC, BBC, Al Jazeera. And then suddenly, while the cameras are rolling, they're raised to life again. The, the Spirit of God breathes life into them. And as the whole world watched, they're raised to life. Total astonishment, horror, I'm sure. And then they're, they're, they ascend into heaven. They're caught up in clouds into heaven, which is uh, just spectacular. It reminds me of the Hebrews 11 passage. The world wasn't worthy uh, to, to have, to host these men. And so they ascend up into heaven. Pretty interesting. Now, we covered more. You can catch up on it all on the podcast. Go to golifepoint.com and just click on the podcast. So let's go ahead and dive into chapter 12. Are you with me? <laughs> Whoop. Isn't this exciting? Everybody go, whoo! Somebody say, bless him, Lord. So verses 1 and 2. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Let's stop there. The woman is symbolic. She's said to be a sign in heaven. She represents something. God was using this image of this woman to communicate something to John 
and I believe also to us. In Revelation, the 12th chapter, the 13th chapter, and the 14th chapter, some of the main players in the apocalypse are mentioned. And all but one are said to be signs. The woman represents Israel, a sign. The the dragon, a sign, represents Satan. The man-child represents, refers to Jesus. The angel, Michael, uh, head of the angelic host, the offspring of the woman, the beast out of the sea, the beast out of the earth, later in in those chapters. And so, regarding this first sign, the sign of a woman, now, we've seen this idea floated before in the book of Revelation, a woman as a sign. Remember the woman Jezebel? This is bonus points. Do you remember which church she was mentioned at predominantly? In Revelation 2. You failed. You failed. Go back and listen to the podcast. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't have known it had it not been in my notes. I couldn't remember right off it, but it's Thyatira, okay? It's, it's Thyatira. The woman Jezebel... Obviously, a, a real woman that was causing trouble there, but referred to as, you know, symbolically, Jezebel. She represented rebellion, deception, false religion, evil. She taught the people how to sin without consequence, without shame. And, and God will use this imagery again with, with a woman in, in Revelation, not only where we are, but in Revelation 17, there will be this great harlot representing false religion. Revelation 19, we'll see the bride representing the church. So back in 12, in verse 1 and verse 2, Roman Catholic theology sees this woman as Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, the queen of heaven. She's clothed with the sun, standing on the moon, has 12 stars around her head, and that's how she's portrayed in Roman Catholic theology and Roman Catholic art, you may have seen an image like this. I think, do we have that image? Uh, you may have seen an image like this. We'll get it up there uh, from, from Roman Catholicism. But if you remember, Revelation has 404 verses and over 800 allusions to the Old Testament. And as strange as the book can seem, And it is strange. If you dive deep into the Old Testament, you usually find the interpretation. You usually find the meaning of of what is being said. It's all interwoven, intertwined. And there is an Old Testament uh, passage in your Bible that deals with a woman and the sun and the stars. It's found in Genesis 37, 9 through 11 in a dream of, of Joseph's. Verse 9 says, Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I, your brothers indeed, come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, Guzik points out that in this dream, the sun represented Jacob and the moon represented Joseph's mother, Rachel, and the 11 stars represented the sons of Israel, which bowed down to Joseph. 
But in this sign in Revelation 12, there are 12 stars. Joseph is now among the other tribes of Israel. I believe this woman in Revelation 12 does not represent Mary, the mother of Jesus, but she represents Israel. I think you can make the case strongly that this woman represents Israel. In other passages in the Old Testament, Israel, also known as Zion, Jerusalem, is often referred to as a woman, and a lot of times as a woman in travail. As soon as Zion travails, children are born. We see this in Isaiah 54, Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 16, Hosea 2, and many other passages. Now, I'm spending a little time here because I think it's important. In most circles of Christianity, the idea of Israel, and I mean national Israel, ethnic descendants of Abraham, the idea of Israel all but disappears after the New Testament, uh, you know, at the cross, the resurrection of Jesus. Most denominations, mainline denominations, theological circles kind of dismiss the idea of the ethnic Jews from then on. In 1994, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, which is what we almost named our youngest son, published a book entitled Israelology, The Missing Link in Systematic Theology. And Dr., I'm just going to call him Dr. Arnold, right? How about that, Court? Dr. Arnold uh, makes the case that uh, Israel is, is in, in systematic theology, Israel's left out, and, and it handicaps one's overall view of what's being said, especially in the apocryphal books. Uh, you've heard me talk about systematic theology before. In systematic, systematic theology, you have theology proper, that's the study of God, uh, angelology, study of angels, biblical theology, study of the Bible, Christology, the study of Christ, ecclesi- uh, ecclesiology, the study of the church, eschatology, the study of the end times, harmatology, the study of sin, pneumatology, uh, the study of the spirit, soteriology, the study of salvation, theological anthropology, the study of humanity. Now, I'm telling you, we're going somewhere with this. But Dr. Arnold argues around five-sixths of the Bible deals either directly or indirectly with Israel. And incidentally, that's from Genesis to Revelation, all the way up until the very end of the Bible. You have Israel, national Israel, ethnic Jews mentioned. And so, in other words, throughout the whole Bible, you have this this idea of Israel, national Israel. And having said that, most theologians neglect or abandon or grossly represent Israel after the New Testament. And, And I'm saying this because the consequences have been cataclysmic, catastrophic, as a matter of fact. You say, how so? Well, listen, John Calvin put the system in systematic theology. I mean, this guy wrote enormous volumes. He was a prolific writer, but he didn't write so much on the ethnic Jews after the New Testament. And Martin Luther wrote volumes also, covering all ten, both of these guys, of the components of systematic theology. But when it came to the ethnic Jews, to Israel, it could be said that Luther and Calvin dismissed them at best or were hostile towards them at worst. Are you with me? 
As a matter of fact, Martin Luther famously, infamously ranted against the Jews. His anti-Semitic rantings are uh, infamous. And in 1543, Martin Luther produ- uh, published uh, a book entitled On the Jews and Their Lies. This was a 65,000-word treatise in which Luther described Jews as a base. Now, excuse me, this is harsh, but you need to hear this. Luther describes Jews, the, the Jews of his day, as a base, whoring people, that is, no people of God, and their boast of lineage, circumcision, and law must be accounted as filth. He went on to say that Jews are full of the devil's feces, which they wallow in like swine, and the synagogue is an incorrigible whore and an evil slut. Luther urged Protestants to take action. This is Martin Luther. Now, how would you like to have Lutheran on your church, right? I mean, I'm just saying, right? I would say, listen, I make a motion, we change the name, you know? I make a motion, we change the name. People say, oh, Martin Luther, he's just brilliant. And he was brilliant. I mean, there's a lot of evil geniuses, you know what I'm saying? And so, Luther urged Protestants to take action. He told them to burn down Jewish synagogues and schools and warn people against them. He told people to refuse to let Jews own houses among Christians. He said that Jewish religious writings should be taken away. Rabbis should be forbidden to preach. And that there should be no protection to Jews on highways. He talked about not lending them money and many other things. Luther's writings were, in fact, so bad that they were used as justification for the Holocaust. Is it any coincidence that in Luther's Germany, some 350 years later, a a man named Adolf Hitler would rise on the scene and would oversee the slaughter, the Holocaust, the slaughter of six million Jews? And then lean on Luther for a justification? I don't think so. So Luther's famous for justification by faith. But he's infamous for producing the justification for the final solution. Years ago when I was in Nashville trying to be a rock star, I was invited to this Bible study. And the Bible study was actually being taught by a pretty big time, pretty famous producer. And, uh, you know, I wasn't too much into the Bible, but I was trying to suck up to this producer to get a record deal, right? And so I was invited to this, this, this Bible study, this very small group of guys, about six, eight of us, and uh, we were going to sit in this Bible study with this producer. And so I went, you know, like, I'm trying to get a deal. I had demo tapes, you know, like, hey, you know, if, they, if I get an opportunity. And so I was just there to, to try to make a connection. So I go and the About two weeks into it, man, I started realizing in my own deranged condition at the time, I was delusional at the time. I didn't know what I believed about anything, but I realized something's wrong with this guy. He started teaching from the book of Ezekiel about how God's going to get all the Jews back together. And and at this second or third Bible study, he said, and God's not getting them all back together to bless them. He's getting them all back together to kill them. And I was like, whoa, Something just sounds wrong about this, you know? 
That doesn't sound like peace, love, and rock and roll. This sounds like anti-Semitism. This sounds like prejudice, bigotry. This sounds like, you know, racism. This, this smacks of something wrong. This went against my social justice conscience. I couldn't handle it. And so I, you know, left the Bible study and left whatever opportunity was there. Let that racist, you know, cat go. I'll find my opportunity somewhere else. And so where did that kind of thought come from? It, it came from messed up theology. I'm not throwing stones. I'm just kind of looking at some history. If you trace it back, Calvin was heavily influenced by Luther. And Luther was heavily influenced by Augustine. He loved Augustine. Uh, way back in the early days of Christianity, Augustine was a big deal. And Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, allegorized much of the book of Revelation. And he assumed God was finished with Israel. And he took references to Israel in the New Testament and forced them. And speaking of, in the Old Testament prophetic, he forced those passages to fit his own point of view. And he believed the church had somehow replaced Israel. According to historian James Carroll, Augustine said Jews should be allowed to survive, but not allowed to thrive. Augustine said that. He was anti-Semitic. He believed the church had replaced Israel. Uh, the ultimate expression of this is called supersessionism or replacement theology. But it's not rightly dividing the word. As a matter of fact, Paul spent Romans 9, 10, and 11 showing how that one day all of Israel would be saved. Now that's another story, and we've looked at that in Expedition Early Church, but the point is, the point, the bottom line is this, Israel has not been written off. There are still promises yet to be fulfilled to ethnic Jews, to national Israel. As a matter of fact, the, the, the fact, you know, Augustine and, and, and Calvin and Luther, like, they missed some things. They didn't see 1948 coming 70 years ago when Israel was gathered back together and became a nation. They didn't see that. In 70 A.D., it was plowed under uh, by the Romans. The temple was destroyed. We saw in 1948 Israel become a, 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 a legitimate nation in the eyes of the world. That's the wheels of prophecy, y'all. That was prophesied. That was prophesied in our Bible. He said, "I'll gather you from the four corners of the earth back into the land I promised you." That was part of the promises, and there are more promises yet to be fulfilled. Now, are you with me? So, where did Augustine get his allegorical point of view with regards to Revelation and Israel? Well, among other sources, we know Augustine was heavily influenced by Origen, one of the early church fathers from the second century. But like many of the church fathers, Origen had some serious issues, okay? And again, I'm not throwing stones. But his own messed up views on asceticism and his fight against sin drove him to crazy extremes. 
crazy extremes. Origin did terrible things. I, I won't repeat for you. You can go look it up. Did terrible things in front of his congregation. If I told you one of these things, uh, you know, some of you would be upset. But he did some horrible things in front of his congregation, uh, trying to make him get, you know, make himself live a more holy life, an ascetic life, and and uh, it's a it's a wonder anybody went to his church. If I saw a man do that, that was leading me as a pastor, I would leave. What he did was not the way to win friends and influence people. And I want to say it so bad, but I'm not going to. Valerie's giving me faces up here. It was unbelievable. Who would listen to a guy like that? I'll tell you who would. Augustine. Augustine listened to Origen. And Augustine's influence on the Western and Eastern church, as well as the Protestant church in general, cannot be overestimated. As a matter of fact, Chuck Mystery muses, that's how we got from Augustine to Auschwitz. And that's how we'll get to Armageddon, which will be another holocaust. By way of theology, that's how it happens. Dismissing an ongoing, continual significance of Israel in the plan of God. It doesn't mean Jews are saved just because they're Jews, just because they're born that way. But there is a, God's made covenants, y'all. When God makes a covenant, it will come to pass. He does not break his word. And there are promises yet to be made, uh, yet to be fulfilled to Israel. And so, in Romans 4, Jesus is known as the seed of Abraham. That's obviously a man, Abraham's male. But he's also the seed of the woman. We see this in Genesis 3. And in one sense, the woman is, is beyond Mary and is representative of Israel. And this woman in Revelation 12, she's in travail giving birth to a son. Verses 3 and 4. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Again, this is a sign. Another sign appeared in heaven. This is not literally a great fiery red dragon. It's just a sign. But the dragon represented this, this being's nature and character. Great, fiery red dragon. Seven horns and seven uh, Ten horns and seven diadems on on his heads. Johnson says he sim that 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 would be Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson says he symbolically suggests his fierce power and murderous nature, a picture of the fullness of evil in all its hideous strength. He's wearing crowns. There's a couple of types of crowns in the Bible, especially in the Greek. You've got diadem crowns and Stephanos crowns. And a diadem is a crown that, that claims royalty and authority. A Stephanos crown claims victory. The, these are diadem crowns. They, they claim royalty. And so you have this, this power and you have this authority. Uh, Volford says, from the similar description given in 13.1 and the parallel references in Daniel 7, 7, 8, and 2, it's clear that the 
Roman Empire is in view. The seven heads and ten horns refer to the original ten kingdoms, of which three were subdued. We'll look at some of this stuff. But, but the idea is this. This is, this is satanic. This being is satanic, and he's after the seed of the woman. And we've seen this. Oh, my goodness, we've seen this over and over. And I'm running out of time. But we've seen this over and over and over where there will be warfare between the serpent and the seed of the woman. Enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman. And you see from the very beginning, the, the devil is trying to kill the seed of the woman. I was talking to uh, somebody today in a Bible study in John chapter 8. We see where Jesus has a showdown with the religious Jews and he says, you're of your father the devil and his will you will accomplish. He was a murderer from the beginning. The very first murder was Cain killing Abel. The devil inspired Cain to kill Abel. Why? Because he hated Abel? No. He wanted to stop the seed of the woman. They all thought, that, that one of these boys could be the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. That, that's what the devil was thinking. That's what Adam and Eve were probably thinking. One of these sons is going to deliver us. And so the devil inspires Cain, takes advantage of his flesh and jealousy, gets him to kill his brother Abel. What was that? This serpent has been doing this all of these years for 6,000 years. And the enemy wants to destroy, and you'll see this, I'll get into it next time. But the child that is born is going to be born and then caught up to heaven. That's going to be not only the Christ in, you know, his 33 years on the earth, but the body of Christ as well is what this represents. Jesus Christ and the body of Christ. Remember when Saul was on the road to Damascus. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. There's this oneness between Jesus and the body. He's the head, we're the body. And so this is representative of the body. that The the body of Christ will be caught up. But the enemy has been trying to kill the seed of the woman and the body of Christ for millennia. And you wonder why you face so many obstacles and persecution and trials and difficulties and discouragement. I'm just telling you this. Just because you signed on to the goodness of Jesus doesn't mean you're immune from the attacks of the enemy. That's why we say, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We need to know that, y'all, because he comes with fire and fury as a dragon who's been around for 6,000 years studying humanity and knowing what makes us tick, and he wants to get us discouraged Get us to give up our faith. Give up, get us to give up on God. But the devil is a liar. He's still a liar today. He failed back then. He failed in Jesus' day. Jesus rose from the dead. He's going to fail at life point. He's going to fail in your life. And greater is he that is in us. And there's more that be with us than are with him. Amen? And in the end, he was waiting for that child to be born. You know the story. Jesus was born. Jesus did live. Jesus did fulfill his mission. And no man took his life. He laid it down. The devil thought, I won. Jesus said, it is finished. He was saying, you didn't win. I won. 
These nails didn't hold me here. The evil spirits moving on these men didn't hold me here. My love held me here. My devotion to the plan of the Father has held me here. And in three days, you destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up again. Man, I love it, man. The book of Revelation is so epic because it just really shows Jesus is the victor. He wears the Stephanos crown, the victor's crown. And if, and if he does, I'm in him, then I'm victorious. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. When, when the Son of Man comes to the earth, will he find faith on the earth? I'm going to tell you, in old DH here, in Jesus' name, he will. By the grace of God, he will. I'll be holding on, you know. And, and the way I look at it is he's got a whole lot of grace. And all i got to have is just a little bit of faith. And, and because I have a little faith, he's got so much grace. I think about picking up Lyra Jane. She's fun, y'all. Can I talk about my grandbaby? Anthony Phillips, can I talk about my grandbaby? She is so much fun. I mean, she smiles and laughs. When, she, when, when I walk into the room, it reminds me of Valerie in the old days. She lights up. And wants to grab a hold of me. <laughs> she wants me to take her outside to see the birds. And I show her birds on the wallpaper and birds hanging on pictures and birds out in the garden. And she just loves Papa, you know. And we just have so much fun. And, and you know, she, she's a toddler. She toddles around, you know, and falls and gets up. And, but here's the deal. Like when she's in, in a place where I need her to go and she'll be toddling around. She'll, she'll reach up her little hand, and I'll grab it. And her grasp is weak. She can't hold on to me like I can hold on to her. And I can get her out of places. Her grip would lose. Uh, she would lose her grip. But I won't lose my grip on her. I love her too much. That's how God feels about you. You just put your hand up there. He'll grab a hold of it. You just hold on with all you got. He won't let you go. He said, nobody can snatch you out of my hand. If you've got a hold of my nobody can snatch you out of my hand. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation. Hey, the church is triumphant. We may be going through battles and difficulties, but in the end, brothers and sisters, we will take those Stephanos crowns off and throw them before him and say, it's only because you held on to me. Come on, give him some praise for that. And this, this, this dragon, you know, he started as a serpent. That old slew foot, the devil. And in the book of Revelation, here he is, a dragon. He's grown, right? He's morphed. Now, here's the difference between, you know, a lot of times there's this portrayal. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was a book written called Between Christ and uh, Satan. And it was just kind of this comparison uh, but it was an unfortunate name because sometimes we see Jesus Christ as, you know, Almighty God is, is 50% and the devil's 50%. That's not the way it is. God has never grown in power. He's all-powerful. The devil, on the other hand, has grown. He's learned. He's morphed. He's, he's studied He's, he's wise to the ways of the world. Uh, he's been around. God has never 
grown. You know, he's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. And so by the time we get to Revelation 12, he's a dragon. But God's never changed. The devil is just as defeatable as a dragon as he was a snake. And so the bottom line is what Adam and Eve faced in the garden, what we face today, we have the same God. And what God did in Christ exceeds what the devil did in Adam. And so we have a victor who's on our side. Anything is possible with our God. Won't you stand with me right now? We'll, we'll deal with this dragon and this war in heaven because we want to kind of get the timeline on this war in heaven. Uh, this is some fascinating stuff. I believe Genesis, I mean, Revelation 12 is a pivotal point uh, in this study as we, as we head towards some of those, like I said, infamous characters uh, that are coming uh, down the line. I've got ten more pages of notes. My word. We'll, uh, we'll stop right there. But God is for us. Nothing, no one can come between us. He's holding on to us. He's holding on to me. Aren't you glad for a heavenly father that's still holding on to you? Your weak got your your, your grip got weak. You couldn't hold on. You were you had little strength. But he said, I got you. I'll get you over here. Just trust in me. Just trust in me. Some of us just need to do that tonight. We just need to relax and say, Father, you've got this. Casting all my care on you because you care for me. If you can take care of the end time church and you can take care of believers in the tribulation with the Antichrist and all that's going on there, God, you can handle my stuff tonight. I'm just letting go. I'm trusting you, Father, in Jesus' name. I'm going to stand in faith. I'm going to stand with the faith that I do have. I'm not going to worry about what I don't have. I'm going to put my faith in you, the little faith I might have left. I'm going to put it in you, Lord. And some faith the size of a mustard seed can cause me to speak to a mountain and watch it be moved into the sea. Zerubbabel, what is this mountain before you? It's nothing. It's nothing. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were blessed by the preaching of God's Word. For more information on our church or Pastor Donovan, or if you plan to attend one of our services, please visit our website at golifepoint.com.